This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, then, in the Word of God this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. <coughs> Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And we'll read from verse 26. This is obviously the scene regarding the crucifixion. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and the breasts that were never nursed, which never nursed. Then they will begin to say, To the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, Could you just pause that one wee second, Gary, just a second, please. Uh, I need to remind you that again next week, no? Wear your poppy with pride too. If you haven't got one, get one this week. Come with me then to... Well, I said that, didn't I? All right, I've really done that. All right, let's start all over again. No, Gary, I'm only joking you. All right. So at the heart of the gospel is the cross. Calvary is the pivotal point of Christianity. The events surrounding the crucifixion have captivated the hearts and the minds of men and women for millennia. The betrayal by Judas, the two trials, the religious trial by Caiaphas, the high priest, the civil trial, of course, then by Pilate, the Roman governor. And then, of course, then there was the denial by Peter, the cruel scourging, the crowning of thorns upon Jesus, the long walk to Golgotha, Simon the Cyrenian, who was got to carry his cross for him. And then the woman, of course, the daughters of Jerusalem, we read, uh, who followed him to the cross. And then at the cross, there was the mocking priests and the jeering crowds and John the apostle with just a few women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. The Roman execution squad, the two thieves on the cross on the right hand and the left. And so all of those deserves our attention and study. But for the sake of what I want to do this morning and over the next couple of services, I I just want us to focus our minds specifically on the seven last statements that Jesus made from the cross. Very, very important indeed. And that's what we're going to begin this morning, and then we'll follow it on uh, over the next uh, few services. The dying words of famous men are rightly recorded in history. Mozart, the great composer, said, The taste of death is upon my lips. I feel something that is not of this earth. Winston Churchill, 
just before he slipped into a coma and passed away, he said, I am bored with it all. That was his statement. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he said, the best of all is that God is with us. What a tremendous statement from the man of God. Catherine Booth, who was the wife of William Booth, the founders of the Salvation Army, the last year of her life was horrific. She was dying of cancer, and in those days, palliative care wasn't really the thing that was done. And so she suffered terribly. But even in spite of that, right on her deathbed, here's what she said, the waters are rising, but so am I. I'm not going under, I'm going over, over to the other side. What a testimony. But scripture has preserved for us the immortal words that fell from the lips of the bleeding Lamb of God. Seven in all. Seven, the complete number. Seven significant sayings. So let's begin this morning and let's listen to Christ's last words from the cross and let our ears be attentive and let our ears be receptive and let it be the spiritual ears of our heart that hears these things this morning. First of all, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At his gravest and darkest hour, Jesus' first words to fall from his lips was, Father. His first act on the cross was to pray. Of all of the places, of all of the times, you would think it would be the hardest time and place to pray when you'd be racked and tortured by pain. He chose to pray immediately. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wasn't praying for himself, he was praying for others. And not just any others, but praying for even his enemies who put him on the cross. Greek scholars say that when he said, Father, forgive them, that it was in the continuous sense. And so for a while he was continually saying, this implies... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they took him up to the hill of Golgotha, and he looked out over those mocking priests and those jeering spectators, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When those Roman soldiers threw him roughly down upon that cross on the ground and stretched out his arms, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do when they pounded those big iron spikes into his hands and into his feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they lifted up that cross and they thudded it into that hole in the ground that would jerk every bone in his body, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a prayer. And what a time to pray. What a place to pray. Only Christ could have done that and said that. And while he was doing that, he was actually fulfilling Scripture. Because right at the very end of Isaiah 53, and you know Isaiah is the great messianic chapter, and right at the very end in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. 
So even in that moment, in his pain and agony, when he was crying out, Father, forgive them, he was fulfilling Scripture, Scripture that had to be fulfilled. Isaiah wrote that over 700 years before Christ went to that cross. And after 700 years, Christ fulfilled that prophecy in that scripture. What a savior we have got, amen? amen? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What exactly does that prayer mean? Who was the them? What didn't they know? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So who was the them? What didn't they know? And if they didn't know, how were they guilty? And if they weren't guilty, why then did Jesus pray for their forgiveness? Was his prayer for forgiveness just a blank check for everybody that was involved in his crucifixion? Or was there more in this prayer? I think that there was. They know not what they do. They knew, of course, for sure that they were crucifying a man, but they didn't know the man that they were crucifying. They didn't know the man that they were crucifying. They should have known, but they didn't know. They thought they were putting to death just a mere man, but they were putting to death their Messiah. They didn't realize the enormity of it. They didn't understand the eternal consequences of what they were doing. This was the Son of God they were crucifying. They didn't know that. And the ramifications of that for them and for us is eternal. He said, they know not what they do. But ignorance is not innocence. Ignorance is not innocence. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in the church here one morning, and I was parked down the street, and I came out of the church, got into my car, drove to the lights to turn left up Main Street to go home again. And you know what those lights are like? You can sit there forever, especially with the three pedestrian crossings. If two people hit those buttons, you're waiting forever. So while I'm waiting, I suddenly remembered there's something else I should have done while I was in there. And so I thought, I'll go back again. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was nobody behind me. And so I thought, I'll just quietly reverse back here and park down the street and go in. So I quietly reversed back, and then crunch. I realized I've just hit somebody. <laughs> And I did. And I got out of the car, and there was a lady, lovely lady, with a lovely car, a big Audi. And uh, she's going to hit one, hit a good one. And, uh, and so she was obviously a bit distraught, naturally. But I assured her, I says, look, it is my fault completely and utterly. I have I, totally my fault. I says, I'll sort this for you. Don't worry about it. We'll get this sorted. And she calmed down, and we went aside, and we did all kinds of things. Long story short, got the car fixed. That was fine. Called up my good friend here, Mark Payne, who's my broker. And uh, uh, Mark was on holidays. No, he wasn't on holidays then. No, he wasn't on holidays. He got that sorted for me. And that day, 
the insurance company was on to her and got that whole mess sorted. So thank God for that. So if you want a good broker, there's a good plug for Mark over sitting over there. <laughs> but anyway, you see, here's the thing. When I looked in that mirror and I didn't see anybody, I was ignorant of anybody behind me. What she had been doing was she wanted to go into, just into the left. Do you know where the shops are there? And if, if she had went another foot further, I would have completely missed her. If I had looked in my wing mirror, I would have saw her, but only looked in my back mirror, my rear view mirror, and I was completely ignorant, but I wasn't innocent. I was guilty, because I ran into her. And I had to admit my guilt and get that dealt with. And so ignorance is not necessarily innocence. And these priests and these Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were ignorant, but they weren't innocent. They lied about him. They brought false accusations. They made a false trial. Uh, they sent him to Pilate illegally. They should have known he was the Messiah. They were the theologians of their day. They had the scriptures to tell them. But they were ignorant. But they weren't innocent. Should have recognized him by his life, by his works, because nobody had ever done what he'd done. But they were still ignorant. But they weren't innocent. In Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, Uh, Peter speaking. This was after the healing of the, the lame man. You know where he said, rise up and walk. And in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of her fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Note this. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, would suffer, he thus has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins be blotted out. You were ignorant, but you weren't innocent, and now you need to repent. And so he's making that absolutely uh, clear. And of course, in in First Timothy, First Timothy, chapter one. Verse 13. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, this is Paul speaking, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And so even though Paul says, I was ignorant, but I wasn't innocent, 
and I needed forgiveness. I needed pardon for my sins. And so that's the same with every man and woman today. Pleading ignorance is not enough because we are not innocent. We're guilty before God. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 5 and Numbers 15, if you were to read those carefully, you would see that there was acts and sins of ignorance. But having committed them, even though it was unintentional, and even though they were ignorant of it, yet an offering had to be made. Blood had to be shed because an offense was committed. And so all of us are guilty before a holy God, whether ignorant or not, and our sins must be forgiven. And only Christ, the bleeding Lamb of God on that cross, can forgive us our sins. Can you say amen? Perhaps of all the accusers and all the enemies around that cross that day, probably the least guilty was probably those pagan Roman soldiers. And yet the least guilty of all had to have Christ's intercession for forgiveness from Jesus himself. There's another side to this prayer of forgiveness which we need to consider. Forgiveness requires repentance, and repentance requires knowledge and time to repent. The crime against the Son of God that day was so evil, it was so wicked, it was so abominable that God could immediately, immediately judge them. He immediately could have wiped them out. You remember how the earth opened up whenever Korah rebelled against Moses? And the earth opened up and swallowed up their whole families. You remember Herod sitting on his throne and the angel of God came and smote him and he died on his throne? God could have, could have instantly judged them on the spot for the wicked deed that they did. But Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And it's interesting that the word he uses for forgive is the same word he uses. Remember he said whenever the, the little children came onto Jesus and the disciples wanted to shoo them away, thinking Jesus wouldn't want to be bothered with those wee kids? And Jesus says, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. Suffer them to come unto me, such as the kingdom of God. In other words, let them come unto me. Let them have their way. Let them do this. Don't stop them doing this. And he uses the same word as on the cross, Father, forgive them. In Matthew 27, in fact, we should read this in Matthew 27. In uh, verse 45, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. 
And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. And the authorized verse says, let be. Don't stop. Don't stop this. Let him be. Let be. And let us see if Elijah will come and save him. In other words, they didn't want anything to stop him. Let it be. And so we could say that when Jesus was on that cross, yes, he was saying, for sure, forgive them. In fact, most times that's what that word means he uses. Just plainly forgive them. But it can also mean not just forgive, but forbear. Let them be. Same word as you here. Don't judge them right now. Stay your hand. Hold back your judgment for a while longer. Make sure that they understand what they have done. Give them space for repentance. You see, that's the other side of that prayer. In other words, I know you could judge them right now, but please don't do that. Stay your hand. Let be. Suffer them. Forbear. Don't punish them right now. Give them a chance to repent. Aren't you glad that God is patient with us? Aren't you glad that God perseveres with us? Aren't you glad that God just didn't judge us immediately for her sins? None of us would be here today if he did. Did Jesus get that prayer answered? I think that he did. Because just six weeks later, on Pentecost, by and large, the same crowd, by and large, the same people were there that was around the cross. In Acts chapter 2, look what it says in Acts chapter 2. Peter speaking, verse 36, that all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all those who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. <coughs> With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and a breaking of bread and of prayers. Huh. In that six-week period that led up to the day of Pentecost, and particularly on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came with great power and Peter preached with great power, then the Holy Spirit convicted the hearts and you can be sure that many of those who were around the cross that day were at that because that was the great feast of Pentecost. They had to be there. And so Christ praying for forgiveness and praying for God to forbear and allow them space that gave time. And many of them 
came to Christ that day. And I'm sure among that 3,000, there was many of them that suddenly their eyes were opened and they could see what they had done and they could see who Christ was. And they came to that place of repentance. And then after the lame man was healed in chapter 3 of Acts, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up in the presence of Pilate, and he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and just asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. And then talks about through faith in his name. And then verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer has been repent, fulfilled. Repent, therefore, be converted, that your sins be blotted out, and so forth. And if you read on through that, you'll see that they repented. Do you know that after Pentecost, 5,000 people came to Christ after the 3,000 that came? So literally within a few days, the church had grown from 120 to 8,000 people in Jerusalem alone. And Christ prayed that prayer of forgiveness to allow space for repentance. Now, of course, not all would repent. Not all will repent today. Some people will go to a lost eternity and never repent. And we've got to understand that. But because of the patience of God, because of the perseverance of the Holy Spirit, then we ought to pray for our loved ones and our friends and family members that God will give them all space and chance, every opportunity to repent of their sins and to come to Christ and to receive forgiveness. Peter says he is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I think that Jesus got his prayer answered when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. One last thought about this first word from the cross. Verse 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Notice the timing of this. Then Jesus said. Because in verse 33, the verse before that says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, where they crucified him and the criminals on the right hand, one of the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The then followed the when. When they came to the cross. When he was crucified. Then he said, Father, forgive them. When man had done his worst, then Christ did his best. When man displayed his, displayed his cruelty and his hate, then Christ displayed his tenderness and his love. When man displayed his madness, then Christ displayed his mercy. When we sinned, he showed us mercy. When we rebelled against God, he showed us mercy. When we did our worst, Christ did his best for us. And this is the wonder and the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was one of the most sublime, the most supreme, the most sacred acts 
of mercy that ever was and ever will be for mankind when Jesus prayed those words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Unfortunately for many in this land of ours that has heard the gospel for hundreds of years, for many they do know what they're doing. And so there is absolutely no excuse whatsoever in our wee land. Sure there's not. We have opportunity every day to come to Christ if we want to. But we need to pray because we need the Holy Spirit to move the hearts of men and women towards Christ. Amen? But know that he is full of forgiveness. He's of tender mercies. He's full of compassion. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so we ought to pray fervently for our loved ones and our friends that they will know Christ, that they will get saved, they will be born again of God's Spirit. Amen. And so we're going to look over the next few services, we're going to look at every word that Jesus spoke on that cross. And some of them are almost, are beyond comprehension. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who could begin to get to the depth of that statement? But we're going to try when we come to that. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.